the places where the events of chapter 4 took place would be very familiar to Jesus some 1,300 years later or thereabouts. Most of the locations which are named in chapter 4 are within about a 10 mile radius of the Sea of Galilee in the north of Canaan, the region where Jesus grew up in Nazareth and where the first part of his ministry took place. And so to be speaking of the salvation which God brought to Israel here in Judges chapter 4 and to know that it's occurring in the same place where this world's once for all saviour would live and teach, that surely helps to give this Old Testament uh, event much greater poignancy. And of course, that's true throughout so much of the Old Testament. If you were paying attention last week and, and during the reading before, you'll have seen how those various components in the stories of the judges, which I mentioned last Sunday, they were clearly in evidence here in this chapter as well. And there are some really important principles that we can draw from these verses as we consider this next judge of Israel. So let's begin by looking at the first three verses of Judges chapter 4. And what we see clearly there is the people, unchecked, return to their sin. Ehud, the judge raised up by God in chapter 3, has died. And in no time at all, the people have reverted to their sinful ways once again. The use of the word again in verse 1 implies very strongly that it was exactly the same sins as last time. And in response to that, God employs Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, to oppress Israel, to inflict misery upon them once more. It doesn't actually mention on this occasion the anger of God. We are expected by now to have recognised the pattern and to have identified these various components in each of the stories so that we don't have to question why God is doing this. It's been clearly stated enough times already. We're told that Jabin had superior military force and he was able to assert himself upon Israel. He's got 900 armour-plated chariots. That's kind of their equivalent to the chieftain tank 3,000 years ago. And we read that Israel were oppressed harshly for 20 years. There were young men and women celebrating their coming of age and they had spent their entire lives under this affliction. We're told that it was 20 years until the next judge was raised up. We're not told at what stage or for how long the people cried out to God. But that's something to think about, isn't it? Were they so hard-hearted, were they so far from God, that it took them 20 years before they began to cry out to him. Or perhaps they began to cry out to God quite quickly, yet continued in their sin. And so God left them to suffer and made them wait for 20 years. 
perhaps it's somewhere between the two of those positions, but they are not in a good place. And God is fully justified to leave them as he does. And for 20 years, they endure this misery that God has put them under at the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. And a number of things stand out to me as we read these opening few verses. We see how quickly and how easily you can return to your sins, especially when you've been left unchecked. Ehud has died. While he was with them, he acted as a restraint for the people. And he helped to keep Israel, Israel on the right track, on the right path. As soon as he's gone, they begin to wander away. And for me, that highlights two important principles. The first is how much we need one another. The Proverbs that we're studying on Wednesdays, they are overflowing with exhortations to give and receive wise counsel and instruction and correction and to be good examples to one another. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. In the New Testament, one of the great points of emphasis in the apostolic letters is the need for Christians to be members of a local church. Why? Well, so they can be under the oversight of elders, so that they can be under the teaching of God's word, so that they can be accountable to one another. You need that. I need that. Israel needed it, and when they lost it, everything soon fell apart. And standing against that is a second principle, which is that those who are truly spiritual, those who are truly walking with and close to the Lord, they will not wander away if, for a time, those blessings of godly community are not available to them. Now, they're wonderful blessings. They're God's means of grace to us. But the lack of them does not need to mean that you just fall away. Think of David during that time before he became king of Israel, when he was being relentlessly pursued by King Saul. During that period, David was, a, he was an outcast. He was being treated like an outlaw. He was enduring all kinds of distress, and yet he remained resolutely faithful to God. Those experiences are recorded in many of his psalms. Jeremiah, the lone, often weeping prophet, whose more than 40 years of ministry fell on deaf ears, but he remained faithful to his calling through all of his struggles and distresses and misery. The Apostle Paul, who on one occasion said it felt as if he'd been completely abandoned and forgotten by the church, he didn't walk out on God, despite how tough those times were. Those who are truly spiritual people when removed from those things which ordinarily provide both encouragements and restraints, 
encouragements to keep on keeping on and restraints from wandering away or falling back into sin, even when those things are removed, those who have a close personal walk with the Lord will receive from him the grace and the strength and the will and the desire to persevere and to keep on. They've hidden the word of God in their heart that they might not sin against him, just as we're promised that the word will do that for us. Well, in Judges chapter 4, there were too many people, sadly, in Israel who were not like that. And once the influence of Ehud was removed, their true nature soon came back to the surface again. Who you are when it's just you and God in the world, that is who you really are. There are very many blessings and benefits which come with being part of a local church and ordinarily you should give yourself fully to them. You should seek to use them as God's means of grace for you and to you and so that you can be of service to others. But if it is merely the, the activity and the experience that you get from all of that. If that's all it is that is keeping you, but not a personal walk with God in Christ which is keeping you, then when troubles come, the true picture will come to light. Church is really important. All the blessings and privileges which it brings are really important. But at the end of the day, it's, what you, it's who you are and what you are in Christ that is the most significant thing that will keep you. That is on a level above all the blessings that you have from church life. And that's why in the New Testament, the chief focus is upon the believer being in union with Christ. As Jesus himself says, it's all about abiding in him. All other things to do with church and God's means of grace towards us, they are dependent upon each member of the body having been born again of God's Spirit, having received newness of life in Christ and continuing to abide in him. If you don't have that, everything else is merely an external facade. It's just a veneer over the top. Picture in your mind a young child riding their first bike and they still have those stabilizers on the back wheel. Has that child yet learned to ride that bike? How do you find out? Well, you remove the stabilizers. Will the child fall over or will they be able to keep on riding? Ehud has died. The stabilizer, if you like, has been removed. What will happen to Israel? Do they keep on riding? No. 
they fall at the first bend in the road. How is it with your heart before the Lord this morning? Times could get very tough for Christians in future years. This virus is nothing really. But the way things are moving in society, the kind of legislation that may yet start to be passed in Parliament, may begin to make life for Christians very uncomfortable indeed. You may find yourself removed from what you consider to be your preferred Christian experience. Maybe that's happened to you even now with this coronavirus, with all the restrictions that we're under. What will happen to you then? Will you fall over? Or will you keep on pedalling? Would you soon fall back into all your old sinful ways? Or will you demonstrate that your life has been totally transformed and continues to be upheld by God and by his saving grace and power in Christ? And to demonstrate that he is sufficient. And that brings us into our next point from this chapter, the sufficiency of God, which is brought to uh, our attention again. Some people like to make a big deal of the fact that the next judge of Israel is a woman. Yes, about time too. A little bit like the, the fuss that was made about the, the new vice president of the USA. I actually don't think it is that much of a big deal, actually. Because even some of the men that God chooses are extremely unlikely candidates. And so if you were wanting to wave the feminist flag and say, look, a woman, a woman can do anything a man can do. I think you'd want to have some rather better specimens of the male of the species than some of these examples that you'll find in the Bible. Gideon comes across initially as a quivering coward with incredibly low self-belief. That's not the kind of equivalence and equality that most feminists have in mind. I really don't think those kinds of thoughts are very helpful and indeed I think really those kinds of thoughts need to be put out of our minds. To be honest, I find the type of men God chooses elsewhere to be far more astonishing than the fact that he chooses a woman here. We need to remember that God has given to us principles and regulations regarding male and female and they are to be the normative thing for us in our dealings with one another in the home and in the church and they ought to be loved and embraced because if they are of God and they are then they are good and they are for our good 
and they are the things which bring him glory. And you're disagreeing with it if you're someone who does disagree. It doesn't change any of that. But that said, if God decides that his next judge is to be a woman, then the next judge of Israel will be a woman. God has directed us as to the principles that we should follow regarding male and female. But God will do what God will do with whoever he pleases to do it. And with whoever it chooses him to please. And if it's clear that it's his choice, well, we just have to leave that with him. And for me, with a Bible open in front of us, that largely is the issue dealt with. There's the story of an auctioneer who had amongst his lots for sale a really old, battered violin. It really looked like it was about to fall apart. And there wasn't a single bid when it came up for sale. The auctioneer was about to withdraw it from sale when an elderly man raised his hand and asked if he may take a closer look at the instrument. The auctioneer agreed and the man walked to the front and picked up the violin. And he took a few moments examining it, tuning it, adjusting it. And then he began to play. And the auction room was filled with the most rich and glorious tones. The man put it down and nodded to the auctioneer. She's a good one. And a sea of hands were lifted into the air, ready to make a bid. It isn't just about the instrument, the hands which are holding it are crucial. God, for whatever reasons are good to him, on this occasion has raised up this woman, Deborah, as judge over Israel. But that's not a feather in the cap for the feminist. This is God being God. And your focus needs to remain fully on God. Twenty years have passed. The people cry out. God hears them in their misery and is pleased to deliver them once again. And Deborah and Barak and a second woman, Jael, are to be his instruments on this occasion. But it's in whose hand they are being held. That's the important thing. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Verse 6. He will deliver Jabin into your hand. Verse 7. The Lord will sell Sisera, the commander of the army, into the hand of a woman. Verse 9. This is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went 
down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. That's verses 14 and 15. It was the Lord who did it. He used the swords of Barak and his 10,000 men to do it, but it was the Lord who did it. It was Jael's hand which held the hammer, which drove the peg right through Sisera's skull. But that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, as his army and even his commander were killed. Much of the finer detail as to how this battle was waged is not given to us. And why would a king abandon his chariot to run away on foot? Verse 15. Well, perhaps the answer lies in chapter 5, in verses 4 and 5, and verse 21, where in her song, Deborah sings of pouring rain, which could have left those mighty chariots bogged down in mud. And she sings of, a, of swollen floodwaters from the river, which perhaps swept them away. If true, how wonderful that God can bring the rains to just the right place at just the right time. What a thing it is to have this God on your side. Or, more correctly, to have him put you on his side. Which, if you're a Christian, is precisely what he has done in Christ. It won't be for your glory, Barak. Chapter 4, verse 9. All the glory always belongs to the Lord, because he alone is sufficient in and for these things. And the fact that the involvement of Jael is spoken of beforehand convinces us of the greater hand of God at work in all of this from beginning to end. So, for example, why do we need to know in verse 11 that Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his, his tent near the terebinth tree beside Kadesh? Well, it's because Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. God had moved Heber and his wife Jael to just the right place so that Sisera would find them and in finding them think he'd found a safe place to hide. Jael greets him. She treats him hospitably. She invites him in. She gives him milk when he'd only asked for water. And then with Sisera fast asleep, calmly pegs him to the ground through the head. And just in case we're not sure what that would do for Sisera, uh, we are told, so he died. 
Now you might wonder, was Jael being deceitful? Was she being duplicitous, cunning, wily? What is important is to see this event, this event inside the tent in its proper setting and context. It's clear that the Lord led this enemy of Israel right into her hands. And God did so during a conflict which God himself had instigated. But note in verse 13 that Sisera went on the offensive against Israel, just as God said he would in verse 7. It's all been God's doing, but Sisera was intent on putting down this potential uprising. As Barak had taken these 10,000 men to Mount Tabor, but that's all Barak has done. Sisera arrived to pick the fight with him. The true character and nature of, of Sisera is revealed. And that's the context in which God has declared that this pagan commander-in-chief of the king's army would die at the hand of this woman. One of the things you can't escape from in the Bible is the decisive way in which God acts for his people and against wickedness. Now, we in the 21st century, we, want, we might find some of these stories, some of these methods of dispatching people a little distasteful and on the surface of things seeming to lack grace but you nevertheless cannot fail to miss one important point. God doesn't mess around when it comes to dealing with sin. He really doesn't, does he? He acts decisively. He acts without hesitation. And for Israel, he is their all-sufficient saviour. And Actually, you have to stand back and simply be amazed at this almighty, all-knowing God who in one single act stands in judgment over wickedness and at the same time shows remarkable grace and kindness towards his people. And that's God all over. And actually, that's what he did at the cross by means of the death of his own son. In one single act of sacrifice at Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ deals with the issue of wickedness and sin and shows remarkable grace and mercy and kindness towards his people. He's the same yesterday, today and forever the all-sufficient God. And thirdly and finally, we're going to conclude with this song of Deborah and Barak in chapter 5. After salvation, a new song. Now, we didn't, read, we didn't read the whole chapter. We just covered the first three verses earlier. But as you'll see, it is a song sung by Deborah and Barak as they rejoice in what God has done. 
and all that God has done is included in the song. Now, in many ways, some of the, the details that we uh, read there, they don't require us to analyse them in fine detail. You can do that, of course, if you wish to, but it isn't really necessary to try and work out what were all of these specific events that are being referred to. The really important thing, as is sometimes the case with portions of Scripture, the really important thing is to see the big picture and certainly not to miss the big picture and to hear the main message which is the cause of rejoicing. In the first part of the song up to verse 18 what we have recorded there are many of the ways in which Israel has sinned against God and failed him interspersed with the ways that God has rescued and restored them. And then from verse 19, the song reflects the specific, the specific events of chapter 4 that we've just been thinking about. And in many ways it concludes with a really pitiful sight in verses 28 to 30. Sisera, the commander of the army, is by now, of course, uh, lying in Jael's tent with his head pegged to the ground. But his mum, back home, is watching and waiting for the return of her son. It's quite a sombre thought, isn't it? Some, some of you may remember a report from a TV journalist during the Falklands War. It was 1982, I think. He was aboard a Royal Navy aircraft carrier and as its Harrier jets were returning he was making his report. Those jets had just been out on a sortie across the islands and he said I'm not allowed to tell you how many aircraft were involved but what I can tell you is that I counted them all out and I've counted them all back. So in other words, all the jets that left have all come safely back to the ship. Sisera's mum is waiting to do the same with the chariots. She's counted them out. She saw her son go out. And she sits and waits to count them all back. It's been too long. And she tries to console herself with the thought that perhaps it's been such a momentous victory that it's taking them a long time to collect all their spoils of war. And just in case you were wondering as to whether Sisera really deserved that peg through his head, look at the phrase, for every man a girl or two in verse 30. Well, even today, certain types of soldiers have certain types of reputation for what they do to the women they capture. Sisera had that tent peg coming to him. But the reality 
verse 31, that Sisera's mum will come to realise is that they have perished at the hand of God. And for those who know God, for those who love God, for those who enjoy his salvation, they are glowing like the sunshine. And God is to be praised. And his people sing a new song. Because God wants more, as he always will, has his victory over wickedness and sin and sets free his people with his salvation. Six times in the Psalms and once in Isaiah, we read of singing a new song. There's been a new experience of God in his salvation, his power, his grace, his loving kindness, his glory, his majesty a fresh understanding and appreciation of God in his salvation, his power, his grace, his loving kindness and his glory and majesty. And his people sing a new song. Twice we see those who worship before the throne of God in the Revelation singing a new song. I wonder, has the Lord put a new song in your heart because you know him as your all-sufficient God and Saviour? Well, my prayer is that today it may be so, and even as these scriptures have reminded us again of God in his power, in his glory, in his grace, in his righteous judgment over sin, that we will find a new song rising up in our own hearts once more to the praise and glory of him who alone is worthy.